we've been talking about Genesis, and most of the book of Genesis is about the patriarchs. And so that's what we're, I'm, I'm hoping to spend a few weeks on, except not in Genesis. We're going to be reflecting on this from, mostly from the perspective of the New Testament. But we're going to start in Isaiah 56, because there's something, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of history between God's promise to Abraham and then what happens in the New Testament, right? One of the huge questions that ultimately doesn't get asked or even answered, really, in Genesis, which is asked and answered multiple times in many ways in the Old Testament, is what happens when Abraham's physical descendants don't have the faith of Abraham? All right? Very practical question. Um, We'll just see one instance here. Now, Isaiah 56, which we'll just read all of. All right? And also another question is, how exactly the promise to Abraham of, through you, all the nations, all the Gentiles we bless, how exactly is that going to work out? Uh, that has its, in terms of the idea of progressive revelation, of God revealing things progressively over time, that find its, finds its fullest expression in the New Testament. There's, there's some ultimate changes that, that happen there. But along the way, I will stop this time in Isaiah 56. Now, generally speaking, Isaiah 56 is, in this section of Genesis, is usually about things after the Assyrian and Babylonian exiles. And the Assyrian exile happened in what year? 722, exactly right. And when did the Babylonian exile happen? 586, 587, one of those two years. Uh, So this is probably going on after this, whenever we read this. So Isaiah 56, thus says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come, and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, and the son of man who holds it fast who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So he's speaking to to Jews there. Now he switches. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. So if we think about there's two separate problems there, right? Foreigner, I don't belong. Am I going to be able to stay? Eunuch, I I can't have children. What about my future? What place do I have? So two quite separate problems. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So in other words, you don't have to have children all right, to have actually a big... A, a big impact in the kingdom of God. Not necessary. Right. And foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, verse 6, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcast of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. So he speaks to the Jews and he says to them, Blessed is the man who follows my commandments and in his righteousness does what I say. To the foreigner who doesn't really quite belong, if you hold fast to my covenant, I will not reject you. 
To those who cannot intermarry into the covenant, to the eunuchs, hold fast my covenant, and I will make a name for you. And then, and this is why I chose this particular one, you've got uh, verse 7, you know, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's quoted in the New Testament. Anybody know where? Jesus. Jesus himself says it. All right. To the sellers, right, in the temple, right? You have made my house a den of robbers. What is it supposed to be? It is supposed to be a house of prayer. And in the context of Isaiah, it's supposed to be a place for the nations to come, all right? Not just for for Jews, but also for the nations. And so you've got here a few things. You've got a development, all right, based on the Abrahamic covenant. Obviously, those in the Abrahamic covenant are, are... are commanded to be righteous. But you already see, at this point, and you see before, a provision for those who aren't physical descendants of Abraham. You can actually come in and be involved in this thing. All right? Follow my commandments. You will be allowed to come ultimately to the temple, and your sacrifices will not be rejected. Verse 9. All you beasts of the field, come to devour all you beasts in the forest. Who are they going to devour? His watchmen are blind. They are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs. They cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain. One and all. Come, they say, let us get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Now, in my uh, ESV, there's a little subtitle there. It says, Israel's Irresponsible Leaders. Let's just look through this text real quick to see why, why are we talking about this. Here, why would this be about that? Who might the beast be, just out of curiosity? We're probably not actually talking about you know lions and tigers and bears here. Historically speaking, who might beasts be that would come and devour the leadership of Israel? Assyria, Babylon. Right? That, that was the place um, that, if you recall, in the Mosaic Covenant, God said, if you disobey me, I will send in foreign nations. All right? And so those are the beasts in this particular case. What about the watchman? What's the idea of a watchman? Well, the idea of a watchman is supposed to watch out, so if danger is coming, you're supposed to alert. Well, what are these people doing? They're not watching for danger, right? They're just chilling out, all right? And in this kind of situation, the priestly caste, because lots of money is going to be flowing into the temple, lots of money is going to be flowing into Jerusalem, it's going to be very easy for them, if they're not taking their job of watchmen very seriously, to just sit back and say, we're just going to sit around and drink some wine, and tomorrow, it's, it's going to be like today, which... Very much the book of Isaiah is about the fact that, no, that isn't what happened. Um, tomorrow wasn't like today, actually. God sent Babylon. And, well, God sent Assyria, and then God sent Babylon, and sent the animals to attack the leadership. So theologically, all right, now we have, a, we have the, the negative case all right, in this chapter of what happens if you have a child of Abraham uh, that does not actually have the faith of Abraham. If you would, turn now to Matthew chapter 3.
So when you see this theme in the Gospels, do not be surprised. The first place Abraham shows up in Matthew is actually in the genealogy. Uh, But we won't read that. We're going to start here in Matthew chapter 3, and there's a parallel for this in Luke chapter 3 as well. So the context here is John the Baptist is preaching. He is, in verse 3, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, a quote from Isaiah 40. So John is taking on that role. And so he's out there preaching and baptizing, starting in verse 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John the Baptist is very much like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, all right? Of warning of coming judgment, of something bad is, is about to happen, right? What's the image? The axe is laid at the root of the trees. It's like it's about to strike is the idea, right? And so he says here, don't presume just because you're Abraham's children that you're okay. God can replace you. What can God replace you with? He can take this rock and turn it into a child. Clearly, I think, an echo to where did man come from? Well, man was formed out of, out of the earth. If God needed to, he could kill you all and replace you. Now, that's not what he is going to do. Um, but the idea is there, he can pull this children from a rock. All right? And then as we'll find from the, later on in, the, in our New Testament readings, well, those will end up not only being Jews, but also Gentiles, which is very consistent with what we read in Isaiah. And so you'll see the parallel there in Luke 8, if you want to go read it. We won't, we won't do it. And speaking of later in the New Testament, seeing something about Gentiles, Matthew chapter 8, please. Some of the development of the New Testament's ideas on how exactly the uh, Gentiles relate to the people of God, some of that doesn't really reach its full development until Acts and, and Paul. But we see here, Jesus, who's, who, who says really nothing different than what we saw in Isaiah. All right, But it's a great image. Isaiah chapter 8, starting in verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word, and my servant will be healed. So the centurion, all right, the centurion understands power, right? He understands power because he's in the Roman government, all right? Augustus Caesar does not need to, or Tiberius Caesar does not need to, go to a foreign country to get something done. He can just sort of, okay, send a letter to that general and have them go, you know, destroy this petty enemy or whatever. He's used to the fact that great power doesn't require someone to actually be somewhere to do it. You can just send your messengers. He recognizes this, and he sees this kind of power, all right? He sees this kind of power in Jesus, 
For I too, verse 9, am a man under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Notice, he's saying this, and his disciples are around him. That might have, might have hurt some feelings. No one in Israel have I found this faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and from the west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's your three patriarchs in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion and to the centurion Jesus said, Come, or excuse me, go, let it be done for you as you have believed, and the servant was healed at that very moment. And so the centurion, who is, to be clear, a Gentile, right? This is this would be a Roman citizen of some sort. He's probably from Italy, alright? Um He's a centurion. He's in charge. Jesus says, I see more faith in you than anyone I've seen in Israel. All right? And then he says, and this very much goes to the point that you see in Isaiah, uh, you're going to find people from the east and the west, referring to Gentiles, all right, coming in to the kingdom of God, while you, the sons of the covenant, speaking to Jews around him, are going to be left out, ultimately. Not all of them, obviously, but many ultimately will. So we, once again, we see the same idea uh, that we saw in Isaiah. The last mention of, of Abraham in Matthew is in Matthew 22. So if you would go ahead and turn there. It's of a different theme, but I did think it was, it was worth, worth mentioning. Because it does touch on a very important doctrine within the Christian faith. Matthew 22. And there's parallels for this in both Mark 12 and Luke 20. Matthew 22. Uh, we'll start at verse 29. Actually, let's, let's back up. 23. The same day the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection... And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must carry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother, and to, so to the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all the women died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. All right. And so this goes back to an Old Testament idea, uh, which we talked about last time, I think. Maybe it was the time previous, whenever we discussed, um, because this came up as a part of Genesis. What happens when uh, a, a, a Jewish man gets married and has no children but dies? Okay, well, the, the next in line in terms of the, of, the, of the children would marry the woman and father children for him. So his, his seed would not go extinct. That was the idea here. And that's what this says. And they're, they're purposely setting up a ridiculous scenario of, okay, this happened seven times. All right. And so they're asking, whose wife? In this resurrection you believe in. All right, that's the idea here. In this ridiculous resurrection, which, whose wife is it going to be? Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. 
He was he did not respect this question <laughs> very much. Well, let's let's think. Of, and as I, you you don't even know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, because that's really what they're going after. They're not. They don't really care about that question on the law. They're just trying to attack the resurrection. For the resurrection, okay, so, and as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? So Jesus is trying to get to their real point. Get, I'm just going to answer your question and push it to the side and then jab at the main problem, which is the fact that you don't believe in the resurrection. I am, and this is what was said to Moses by God. I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So that's a quote from Exodus 3.6. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. And so, you know, we've discussed before that the doctrine of the resurrection, explicitly in the Old Testament, doesn't come up a lot. However, Jesus is interpreting the Old Testament here and going, okay, now pay attention to these words, all right? God doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, and I was the God of Isaac, and I was the God of Jacob, but I'm not anymore because they're dead. Now I'm going to help the Israelites. That's not what it says. He's pointing to the present tense aspect of this is, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if that's the case, all right, then they must either be still alive or must be resurrected in the future. All right, so that's the theological point there. God is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of his people that are dead. And because he is their God, then they will be resurrected in the future. And that is the basis of the doctrine of the resurrection that you can get ultimately from statements in Exodus. And you can even get it earlier, right? Because God said to, to Jacob, I am the God of Abraham. Right? You could have gone further earlier this than you would have gotten this, because by the time God says this to Jacob, Abraham is dead. But here, we've got all the patriarchs who've been dead for like 400 years. And so, very dead. Yet, God says, I am the God of Abraham. Am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Abraham plays an important role in this particular gospel, and in different ways. Um, usually it's talking about the, or the background of this, right, is the lineage question of Jews being ultimately the children of Abraham. Here, in that last one, it's really mostly just for the resurrection. Uh, if you turn to Luke now, the first mention in Luke because the genealogy in Luke happens um, later than chapter 1. If you would look at Luke chapter 1. Alright. Abraham actually shows up twice here. You've got two people, two godly people here that in their praise to God because of what God is doing, in the first case, Mary, and in the second case, John the Baptist. Well, the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah. You've got both of them tying what is happening way back to hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of, you know, over a thousand years ago. All right, and so here's Mary 
3 or 4-ish BC. All right? Thinking back over a thousand years. And she says, after this is after the, the she this is after the angel has visited Mary, and also after Mary has visited Elizabeth. In verse 46, and Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. Notice, and we'll see this in many ways. Notice the long-term view of Mary. All right? It's a short-term view for us to think in terms of, okay, what's going to happen to us tomorrow? Or what's going to happen to my kids after I die? Mary is, because of this, thinking long-term future. All right? All the generations will call me blessed. Okay? For he has done, sir, he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Once again, there's that length of time aspect there. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble state. And there she's, I think, primarily talking about herself, right? She's nothing. I mean, she's just... Well, according to the world, she's nothing. She's just a, just a peasant girl, right? But God has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. There's that long term. So Mary sees herself in a very long line, starting with Abraham. But she doesn't look at herself at the end of the line. She sees, I'm somewhere in this, and there's going to be a lot of generations after this that are going to look back on this and call me blessed, which we still, in fact, do. Mary was uh, a prophetess and was absolutely correct here. And so, Mary, long-term view, right? And from a Christian perspective, that is the view we're supposed to have, right? We're supposed to have a long-term view. It's, it's really easy outside of this kind of context to not have that kind of long-term view. And as people try to be you know, ideological iconoclast and destroy every bit of history and change everything all of the time and try to progressively make the world, remake the world, they will often spurn their history. All right? And they will throw away what's good and just let's, everything before went, was bad and what we're going to do now is good. Uh, the Christian view is very long term of God has been working and is working right now and will continue to work. All right? If you don't have something like this, where do you fit in to history? All right? Are you just an accident? All right? Are you just an accident? Are you, you just come in and you're going to go? From the Christian perspective, from the Jewish perspective, which, of course, we have adopted, it's not that way at all. It's very long-term. All right? God was faithful to Abraham and was faithful to the people between Abraham and Mary. And God has been faithful to the people between Mary and us. And God will be faithful to the Christians when we're dead. And so, we fit into something that's very large and that cannot be stopped, ultimately. And so, Mary has this long-term perspective. We should learn from that. Now, Zechariah, all right, is going to prophesy here in a moment. And so, right after this is the birth of John the Baptist. And you might recall Zechariah was struck dumb. Um, He was not able to speak Right up until his uh, his child's birth, and so when sixty uh, when verse sixty seven happens, um, 
you've, you've got Zechariah talking for the first time after a while. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Once again, it's not necessarily a focus on him. It's, it's the long-term perspective, once again. And has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets of old. And so I think he's probably thinking in terms of two people here. My assumption is Zechariah, because Jesus is in the line of David, Zechariah is as well. All right? And so he's thinking about this in terms of, of Davidicness. And so John the Baptist, I assume, I assume is in that line. Maybe not. But at the very least, he's looking forward to a Messiah to come, who certainly is. And he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. There's that very long-term perspective there. The oath he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. And that sounds just like David in his psalm when he prays to God. I've got enemies. Bring me into your temple by your faithfulness. Verse 75, And holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, speaking of John, will be called prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people, and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. And shortly after this, right? in terms of text time, probably 30 years after this, in terms of actual time, we have that passage we talked about earlier of John preaching, and some come talk to him, he's like, you're a brood of vipers, right? That passage would uh, would come up shortly after this. That's right. Different kind of beast, but certainly a beast, a snake. If you would uh, turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. In verse 10. Now, he was teaching in the synagogue, synagogues on the Sabbath. He, in this case, being Jesus. Behold, there was a woman who had a disabled, disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight. And she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Then the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all people rejoiced 
at all the glorious things that were done by him. And this goes back to the law, obviously. In the law, you weren't supposed to work on Sunday, or excuse me, Saturday for them would be their Sabbath. Um, but there were there were allowances. Like if something major was going on, right? There were times where you could actually do some work, all right? If if your if if your ox is going to die if you don't get it out on the Sabbath, you can get it out on the Sabbath. It's okay. In here, right? They were like, "Look, why why didn't you just come yesterday and get healed? Why today? Why don't you just come back tomorrow and maybe do your healing there?" And Jesus is just look. This is a child of Abraham. There's something wrong with you. It is entirely okay when you've got a child of Abraham who is sick to heal them on the Sabbath. All right, you're way too you're you're way too into your own interpretations of the law and your traditions when you should have mercy. Is is the point here? I think we're going to skip anything in Mark and let's focus on John. So, if you would turn to John chapter eight. Abraham is only mentioned in one section of John, at least by name. But he comes up several times in that section. And so this is what uh, we shall end with today. All right, and so this very much fits in with, with some of our themes that we've talked about so far. But we get another thing to throw in, which is very important. John chapter 8, verse 31 is where we will start. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say... You will become free. So he's he's speaking to a group of Jews, all right, um, and it seems to be that he's specifically referencing a group of Jews that believe, all right. But they've got a question at this point. We're going to have some Jews that clearly are having some issues throughout this passage here. So it's an interesting dynamic of how all they fit in here. But they've got an issue because they're apparently a little confused because um, he says ultimately um, if you abide, listen to me and believe in me and this truth will set you free. And they're like, what do you mean free? I mean, we're not, we're not slaves. Technically true. They weren't totally free either, right? Rome was in control. But they weren't slaves. All right? Slave, slavery was a condition and they were not slaves of the Romans. And so they're like, but we're, but we're not slaves. So what do you mean? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me. So clearly he's talking to some people that aren't quite faithful. Because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Alright, so... He's, Jesus is, is, he's creating a fight. <laughs> or maybe not purposely, but the words he is saying here are extremely offensive. All right? True, but extremely offensive. And so we're definitely going to have a fight here. 
But let's go back and think about this language a little bit more. Jesus answered them, back to verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. All right? You should think about 1 John. All right? This, this theme definitely shows up there. Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now, what about this statement? The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. Okay? What's he pointing to here? Now, a slave um, can be manumitted and then released from a house. And so, the slave is owned by a master, but and, and is, in a, in a sense, a part of the extended family because he is owned by the master. But he's not in the same place as the son. All right? The son remains forever. The slave can come and go. You can kill the slave if necessary. The slave can be released. The slave, slave can be sold. All right? You're not supposed to kill your child. And you're not going to sell your child. That would be wrong. Uh, so the son will, save, will stay forever. But there's also here a notion, all right? And this is going to get developed, that why is he mentioning slave here? Well, he just talked about slaves of sin. Based on Isaiah and based on what we're reading about John, what John the Baptist said, all right? If you've got a slave to sin, what is their relationship to Abraham? Even if they're a child of Abraham, they don't belong in the house, is what Jesus is saying. If you've got a slave of sin within the Abrahamic family, they don't belong there. They will not remain there forever like a true son will. So that, that's where he's going with that. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, not free to leave the house, but free from being a slave to become ultimately a son. I know that your offspring were Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because of my words have no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. Okay, so this sets up a... They get mad, right? They answered him, Abraham is our father, Jesus said to them. If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. Notice, Abrahamic sonship here is very explicitly not purely genetic. All right? How did Abraham become a child of God? Faith. Well... Did he obey God? Yes, he also obeyed God. It's faith and obedience. They're, they're, they're very much tied, all right? If you are truly a child of Abraham, in the important sense that someone is a child of Abraham, then you would do what Abraham did. But they're not doing what Abraham did, right? That's the point. I think you, we're, you were talking about in words being offensive. He premised the whole thing saying, I'm going to tell you the truth. Yeah. The truth it's going to set you free, but it's, it's not an easy truth. It's a, it's a truth. Yeah. You're not in the right place right now. Yeah. You know, and then he just, um, verse 40, said it again. You seek to kill me, a man who told you the truth. You just didn't want to hear it. Yeah. And I wonder when it says there in verse 31, the truth of Jews that had believed him. Is this just a superficial belief? Is this there's a group of people here? They okay. We, we see where you're going with this. All right. We we hear you, and that seems right. And at this point, Jesus is going to go. I'm going to put. I'm going to tell you a truth that's going to separate the wheat, the wheat and the chaff. If you want to go with that image. All right. 
I'm going to give you a truth, and some of you are going to get very angry. Yeah. Sounds like that passage where I forget where it is, where it said many were coming to him, but he was not entrusting himself to them because he, he knew what was in them. Yeah. Yeah, it seems very it seems very similar. They believe, some do, but Jesus knows what's going on and he's he's putting the truth out there. Yeah, I think you're right. Verse 41, you were doing the works your father did. They said to him, "We were not born of sexual immorality." It's not like there was a gentile in the family or something like that. We have one father, even God. All right. So they're pointing back through their lineage to God as their father. And Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. All right? So this is just one of those places where Jesus is just speaks in a way that just, that just basically shows he knows his place and his authority and that he is in truly unique. All right? Normal people can't talk this way. All right? Because it's not, not quite true of normal people, right? He's like, I came from God. All right? In a sense... When we are, as believers, we also come from God, but not in this sense. All right? Jesus has a special relationship here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. So verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? And then he answers this question. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. All right? you, it's because you don't like what I say. All right? why, why don't you believe it? You don't like it. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. All right. And so this, this is not what you do to make friends, all right? This is not what you do. Jesus is being very clear about what's going on. He's telling the truth, all right? And he's giving them, he's, by telling them the truth, he's ultimately giving them an avenue for fixing their problem, right? All right? The, the truth can set you free, is his statement to them, right? If they would just believe this and go and repent, right? Then they would, in fact, be set free. That's, that's not how they react, though, right? Um, and he says, well, all right, let's talk about your father, all right? So if the child of Abraham is the one who does good deeds, all right, because they're like their father Abraham, who would be, who would, they, who would the father of those who are not like Abraham be? Who might that be, all right? So at this point, he ties them to, instead of Abraham and therefore God, you are the child of Satan. Why? Well, what's Satan's character? He was a murderer from the very beginning. All right? He, yes, yeah. The accuser, the murderer. What, what do you mean murderer from the very beginning? Think back to the fall. Yeah, the, the murder of Adam and Eve. Not the immediate murder of Adam and Eve, but they're bringing on their spiritual death. He was... He was involved in that. And so therefore, you know, Satan is a murderer from the very beginning. And so he's saying, you're not, you're not like Abraham, all right? And God, who is his father, you are like your father, the devil. And there doesn't seem to be an in-between stage. There's not. Yeah. 
And theologically from the Old Testament, why, why is that true? Well, everybody from Adam is descended and corrupted because of that. But then in Genesis 12, God says, Abraham, I'm going to build something new out of you. And those from you, all right, those who are of your seed, I will bless. All right? And later on, we find that that's not just a physical seed, but a spiritual seed, a spiritual descendant, those who do the works of Abraham, which is, which is the point here. So if you're not doing the works of Abraham, you must not be a child of Abraham. You're like, you're like your father, who is not Abraham, who is, in fact, Satan. All right? So that's, that's when that started. Everybody's Satan's child. All right, who does not follow God. God picks out Abraham and says, all right, new beginning right here, covenant. Now we're going to fix the world, which is still going on. It's still ultimately about that covenant with Abraham. So verse 46, no, verse 45, because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God, hears the words of God. Why don't you believe me? You're not of God. That's why you don't believe me. You're not a child of Abraham. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? There must be something wrong with you. You are saying some very, very unpleasant things. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So now Jesus takes this a little further. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. But you do not know him. I know him. Tough truths. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do, I do know him and keep his word. Right? Now, notice this. Now he goes back to say, your father, your physical father Abraham, right? your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. All right? And so now he's, he's already established there's more than one fatherhood, very clearly. Fatherhood of God or Satan. But now he goes back to the, you know, the physical fatherhood. You know? Your father Abraham rejoiced. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Going back, really, to that same spot that we quoted earlier from Exodus, of where God says, I'm the... I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That same statement about that, that really he used there to prove the resurrection, this comes from that as well. This is the general statement of God's self-existence. When, uh, you know, as, as Moses asked, when they say, who sent me, who do I say? He says, I am that I am. They self-exist in God. From, from a theolo- theological standpoint, right, the Old Testament has lots of gods in it. But there's only one self-existent God, because all the little g-gods were created by the one self-existent God, just like everything else was. And so for here, right, 
He's, he's, he's taking this conversation and saying truth consistently and making them mad consistently. Not because there's anything wrong with what Jesus is saying, but because ultimately their patrilineage is from two things, Abraham and Satan. And that's a problem. And ends it with, essentially, a statement about his own being. Before Abraham was born, I am. All right? And at that point, they realize they're, that he is essentially claiming to be God. And so they're like, that's blasphemy, we're going to kill you now. They try, and they fail, right? Same thing that happens um, in his actual trial. They see him, and they, they hear his words and think, you're committing blasphemy, now we can kill you, right? Same thing here. They're so enraged, they try to kill him, but his, not, his time had not yet come. So from a gospel's perspective, you see Abraham show up a number of times. Sometimes it's just in genealogies, which we didn't read for time's sake. But those are important because it establishes the baseline notion that they were working within this idea of them be, being children of Abraham. But theologically, you've got all over, in various ways in all of this, two notions. One, that, two no, that I want to point out. One, uh, a long-term view of God promised to Abraham and is continuing that promise and will continue it into the future. All right? Ultimately, your salvation is based on that promise to Abraham. All right? It's a fulfillment of that promise to Abraham. And so you are just one in a long line, all right? A long line back to Abraham. Theologically, since you're all Gentiles, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but that's true. That becomes very clear in Acts, and we'll go there next. Uh, not today. It becomes very clear in Acts and gets explained very clearly by Paul. But here, we've set up, all right, very long perspective. All right, We've also set up not everyone who is a child of Abraham is a child of Abraham, which is not a contradiction. It is to say there's multiple ways of th- thinking of lineage. There's physical lineage, and that's not really the one that matters. The one that really matters is faith and obedience. So all those things have been set up, right? And uh, all of those really are Old Testament-based. There is... There's really nothing new there. Maybe the, the state, specific statement that, that the, the religious leaders were children of Satan, maybe that's new. Uh, but it, just the, the notion of those in the household, all right, who were descendants of Abraham, being devoured by animals because they were unworthy is very much an Isaiah concept and very much something that comes from the Old Testament. So... But we'll see this more developed uh, even more in the future. Any questions? Not much time for questions. Any small thoughts before we dismiss? I think it's interesting, verse 48, they basically say, you're not a real Jew. You're a Samaritan. We say you're a Samaritan. You're like a half-breed. Yeah. There's got to be something wrong with you. Right? It's... If you were true to you, you wouldn't say these things. Yeah. Like, because really, he's he's questioning their validity to call themselves children of Abraham. Mm-hmm. They don't do it. And like, no, no, no. You're the one who needs to be questioned. Yep. I think it's.
it's a beautiful thought, though, in later on in the New Testament, how he talks about how the Gentiles are grafted in, mm-hmm. and it's just amazing his love for uh, Israel, and how he allows us to be the sons of God as we are adopted. Yeah, and it's just beautiful. It is beautiful. It is. Absolutely. So think about that today as you worship. All right. Think about how the, the fact is uh, none of you. All right. None of you are physical descendants of Abraham, as far as I know. All right. None of you are physical descendants of Abraham. But, all right, you can still be like David. All right. When you go to worship and say, be with me, God, in your righteousness, because God will be faithful to us. Right? Just as he was faithful to Abraham, and just like he was faithful to David, just like he was faithful to Jesus, and just like he was faithful to the disciples, which we'll read more from soon. So think about that today. All right? Think about that as you worship, just like thousands of years of believers have worshiped before you. Okay? All right. Let's, uh, let's be dismissed. I'll pray for us. God, help us today. Give us grace. Help us see who we truly are and how we are a, a big family who's been around a very long time. And how, Lord willing, we will be, along, be, be around a very long time in the future. So help us keep that long-term perspective. Long-term perspective of your faithfulness towards us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.